Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to Loose Ends, the Singh Family Tragedy. This is episode 14, The Defence Speaks. My name is Graham Crowley. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast has been created for an adult audience, so listener discretion is advised. The thoughts and opinions in this podcast are mine. Barrister Sam DiCarlo has agreed to come on the podcast and joins me shortly. He represented Max Secret both the committal proceedings and the trial. He has some amazing and interesting insights on the case, and I'm sure you will enjoy listening to them. Before we get into that, I want to bring you up to speed with what else has been happening in the loose ends world. I approached Max Seeker's lawyer regarding an interview with Max. Jeff Johnson, his solicitor, informed me that whilst matters are before the court, he would be advising Max not to give interviews to anyone. Jeff added that Queensland Corrective Services would, in his understanding, refuse any and all requests for an interview with Max Seeker, as per their standing orders regarding any media interviews with inmates. As you would expect with police investigations, there was a lead investigator on the Singh murders from day one. Initially, it was a detective senior sergeant, I shall call Brian, who remained in the role until December 2004. In that month, Brian went on leave and never returned to work. He subsequently separated from the Queensland Police and obtained employment elsewhere. In early February 2022, I sent Brian a letter requesting an interview for the podcast, but have not heard back from him. As I have not had the courtesy of a reply from Queensland Police regarding my request to interview the arresting officer, I had hoped Brian would be able to provide you, my listeners, with information regarding the murders and investigation from the police perspective. As Brian is no longer a member of the police, he would not be constrained in talking about the case. If he does reply, I'll let you know. I recently called Shirley Singh and spoke with her at some length. She had not heard of the podcast and she did not understand what a podcast was. I sent her a link and asked her if she would be willing to listen to the podcast 
and consider being interviewed for it. Shirley told me she would think about it. She stated she is in the middle of writing something to help other people, and that is occupying her time. She did not enlarge on the nature or contents of what she is writing, and I did not ask. She agreed to speak with me further, but said it would not be for months. I'll let you know how that goes. I received a very detailed email from Jason in the last week. Thanks, mate. He was commenting on Episode 7, Murder and Mayhem in the South Pacific. Jason has been involved in aviation for over 30 years. After listening to that episode, he too went looking for the elusive Cassie report relating to the air crash in the Solomons in 1991 in which 15 people lost their lives. He did not find the report. He did find two other publications which made mention of the disaster. Jason concluded the crash was a tragic accident. Jason wrote a very detailed email to me, and I have posted the email on the Facebook page. If you want further information regarding that tragedy, you need look no further than Jason's email. Thanks again, Jason. I accept Jason's findings and comments completely. They corroborate what Solicitor Jennifer told me when she said she had read the original Cassie report, which had concluded the air crash was a tragic accident. Perhaps it is OCD, or perhaps it's because I do not like loose ends, but I'd still like to know the identity of the body found in the co-pilot's chair. In the very same week that I heard from Jason, I received contact from a resident of the Solomon Islands, also commenting on episode 7. You will recall I provided details of Mr T in episode 7, the man murdered in Honiara in 1991 because he, or his company, was owed $300,000 by Joe Cool. Mr T's only mistake was he lent money to the wrong person. A relative of Mr T made contact. They had heard of the podcast and listened. The relative was pleased that I was able to fill in some gaps into the fate of Mr T. I asked the relative if I could use some of the material I was told, but I'm still waiting for a reply. Hopefully I can bring you some more information in a later episode. I suggested to the relative we could have episode 7 translated into Pigeon English if that helped spread the story through the Solomon Islands and possibly gather more information regarding Joe Cool. I also received comment from Claire regarding the messages exchanged between Neoma and Maxika as related to you in episode 12. In her comparison, Claire raised the 2013 murder of Shandy Blackburn in Mackay, Queensland. Journalist Hedley Thomas has done a fantastic job with his podcast on that tragic case. Hedley also turned up disturbing evidence of systemic failure in Queensland health when it came to DNA testing. Hedley was able to highlight significant shortcomings in the DNA examination of the evidence in the Blackburn case. 
That caused me to ponder the DNA evidence in the Singh murders, and I'll discuss that in depth in a later episode. Graham, I'm sure you're probably right across Shandy's story by Hedley Thomas. The contrast between the vitriolic text messaging between Shandy and her ex-partner, the accused, is a massive contrast to the gentle sweet tone between Neilma and Max. It's hard to fathom, that's for sure. I agree with Claire's comments completely. The contrast is stunning and disturbing. I'm going to play a short comparison of the exchanges between Max and Neilma and the exchanges between Shandy and John, with acknowledgement to Hedley Thomas in the Australian newspaper. I'm not suggesting for a minute that because there is no aggression in the exchanges between Max and Neilma, that he is innocent. I am merely comparing the two. There was no physical violence between Max and Neilma. As far as I'm aware, there was no physical violence between Shandy and John either. Friends described him as very calm and he would never assault a woman, just as Max was similarly described. Whilst there was verbal aggression between Shandy and John, there was never any aggression present between Neoma and Max. And I appear to be out of step with the majority of listeners of Shandy's story when it comes to the identity of Shandy's killer. I am not convinced of the guilt of the ex-boyfriend, John Peros. I look forward to listening to further episodes as Headley drops them. You are welcome. I am very happy too. It was nice to see you happy and smiling. Sleep well and take care always. You have a good heart. Sweet dreams. This isn't right, Nim. Mama can't just accuse me without proof. Neither can you. Thought you knew me better. I will stay out of your life if that's what you want. Hope you know I'm not trying to destroy you. You don't speak to me, so I don't know how you are going. What are you still doing up? You want to chat if you can't sleep? Let me know. Thanks for the awesome Christmas present. Happy New Year, John. Go fuck yourself. What's your problem? I was only being nice. Go be nice somewhere else. Your text yesterday was really bad. I should never have given you this number. It was stupid of me. Please delete it. John, I won't speak to you again, but that huge message I wrote you was meant to be nice. I've tried so hard to be strong about this, and I was trying to look on the bright side. I know this hasn't been hard on you, but it has been on me. I was just trying to be nice. Sorry. Well, it wasn't nice at all. Either was the one you just sent me. Fuck off out of my life. I don't want to speak to you again. Fucking delete this fucking number and my other number. Just fuck off. At the commencement of this podcast, I made comment of the fact that the majority of people in Queensland, and probably Australia, considered Max Seeker guilty. And that was before the trial. Me included. The constant theme in the feedback I'm receiving confirms this. Here is a recent email from Jenny. Dear Graham, brilliant work with your comprehensive podcast and a thorough consideration of all the evidence. Before your podcast loose ends, I always thought Max Seeker was guilty. 
but realise now that his distressed mum outside the courthouse on the day of his conviction was right. Not all the evidence was considered. It definitely seems like a miscarriage of justice occurred, and if there's any positive action or influence I can make to having Max Seeker acquitted, please let me know how I can help. Kind regards, Jenny. I'm still working through the evidence in the case. I have sidelined most other inquiries to focus on the DNA. I will bring more episodes on as soon as possible. In the meantime, here is Barrister Sam DiCarlo. Hello, Sam. How are you? Good, Graham. How are you? It's been many years, Sam, since we last spoke. Yes, many years. Sam, thanks very much for talking to me today, taking time out of your busy schedule. I believe the listeners will learn much from your involvement in this case. Perhaps we could start by telling the listeners a bit about your background, your past history, employment, etc. Yes. Um, I came with my parents to Australia in 1963. We lived in Brisbane for a year, then moved to Sydney. Thereafter, I came back to Queensland. I had always wanted to be a policeman. Um, I joined the police force in 19, the Queensland Police Force. In 1975, I graduated in January 76. I was transferred to Townsville, then back to Brisbane to the licensing branch. Um, I spent almost two years undercover and or in charge of an undercover team. I then got involved in a significant issue relating to corruption by the commissioner and other people in the police force. And for several years, I had serious difficulties with Terry Lewis and a number of high-ranking police officers. And ultimately, they decided that my accusations of their corruption were, in effect, a mental disorder. And I was boarded out medically unfit on the 20th of May, 1987. Shortly after that, the Fitzgerald Inquiry commenced. I gave evidence of that Fitzgerald inquiry for some two or three days. And my story really is revealed by a Quentin Dempster in a book called Honest Cops. And there's a whole chapter about what happened to me. The upshot was that the psychiatrist had diagnosed me as having a paranoid disorder, having regard to what I was accusing the high-ranking officers of. At the end of the day, in his last bit of evidence, he was asked whether he would review his decision in respect to my state, and in the book it finishes off by simply saying that he's now had to review his decision to me having a healthy suspicion rather than a paranoid disorder. On a couple of occasions they attempted to kill me. They also attempted to set me up by accusing me of a murder, but that was a a system whereby Barry O'Brien and his mate, basically working for the hobnobs, um, really wanted to ask me about what I was going to tell the Fitzgerald inquiry. They directed uh, Warwick. What was his name, Warwick, in the Homicide Squad? I worked with him in Townsville. What was that guy's name, Warwick? Um, can't remember his name, but he he ended up driving a taxi and he was one of the witnesses or one of the possible witnesses in the Seeker matter, coincidentally. 
that the police directed him to reveal to the world that I was a suspect in my brother-in-law's murder, and he personally rang me and told me that I wasn't a suspect and that he'd been directed to by the Deputy Commissioner. Anyway, there's a book called Honest Cops that tells all of that. I then left the force. I then um, obviously had, you know, some, I was unwell for a while, and then I studied law. I started studying law when I thought I couldn't get any further in about 1983. I gave up in about 1988 and then went back to in about 1989, perhaps a little bit earlier. I worked in two solicitors' office. Then in 1991, I became a barrister, and I've been a barrister since the 20th of May, 1991. So nearly 30 years, or just over 30 years. Congratulations, Sam, on your achievements. I'd like to turn to the Singh case, in which you played a major part. Can you tell us how you became involved in the case? Well, my involvement came about because, essentially, um, I suppose without denigrating myself, it was very hard for them to get any lawyers that were interested in doing the case. I think Max's mother or Carlo approached me. <clears throat> They'd heard about me somewhere and asked me whether I would do the case. It was almost impossible because there was little or no fees involved and there was no solicitors that I can remember wanting to assist in any way, shape or form. So... I prepared mountains of material, an extraordinary amount of material, increasing every day because of the drip feed by the police during the progress of the committal with students from Bond University, actually, and other students or clerks that I had assisting me. So effectively, we did it with very little money and with the assistance of um, students rather than lawyers. So you represent him from the start? No, I think he was initially represented by Robertson O'Gorman. And they got out of it when he could no longer afford it or something like to that effect. You represented uh, Max Seeker at the committal and the trial? Correct. I didn't do the appeal. I specifically didn't do the appeal because I wanted them to get someone that could not only check over appeal points, but also because I wanted that person to go through everything I did. And I told them that if they found anything wrong, that I would give an affidavit in support if I agreed that it was wrong, because that goes a long way in an appeal situation. So if a barrister does something wrong during the course of a trial, And in an appeal, another barrister says, well, this is what went wrong. And you as counsel admit it and you tell the court, it goes a long way with the Court of Appeal. So I offered that at that time. Sam, on the Crown case, this was clearly a domestic violence event. Do you agree with that assessment? No. No, it was never, in my view... It was never a domestic violence event. There was a significant amount of domestic violence. Almost all of that came from VJ. I think there were some 25 or 50 violent offences against his wife, even to the extent of pulling her across carpet and burning her 
and ending up in hospital, kicking her in the stomach when she was pregnant. The suggestion that Max and Numa had a waxing and waning relationship was an invention. They, like anybody else, had difficult times. Both of them could never tell the truth, especially Neilma, when it came to their relationship because of outside pressures. In my view, she was not murdered because she left Max or because of a domestic violence issue. Um, and I've listened to your podcast in respect of what other people think about that and even what you think about that. I disagree wholeheartedly. I think there's a number of people trying to make the event fit their needs for their publications. This was a case that, sure, there was some domestic violence. Sure, there's some coercion. Sure, the brain tumour thing. Sure, all of these things are indicative of what these days they call domestic violence and all these experts seem to talk about. But in my view, uh, that was really only used as a powder keg to get their case enhanced. They had a few weeks off and that was it. Most of the time they were together behind everybody's back. The media continuously portrayed their relationship as tumultuous, on again, off again. Do you agree with that? Well, there was never a, a tumultuous relationship. They were always in love. If you take the time when she was in Dubai, she did everything in her power to come back to him. She did everything in her power to keep it from her parents that she was living with him in the caravan, I think somewhere near Bribe or something from recollection. The relationship was amazing for them. They were just so happy. It was really only the external forces that were at play that made their time more difficult. It was never tumultuous. Do you have an opinion on the innocence or guilt of Max Seeker? I don't know the answer to that. <clears throat> it's a very difficult question because of the complete incompetence of the police to investigate this matter on the basis that they include all the inculpatory evidence, as well as all the exculpatory evidence. What the police did, and some of it was through either inexperience and some through incompetence, and some through the desperate desire to pin somebody for the murders, was they only ever included inculpatory evidence. They completely avoided, and to some extent hid, any exculpatory evidence. So I'll never know whether he's guilty or not guilty. The best I can say is two things. First of all, there was never ever enough evidence in the ordinary course without the bolstering to convict him beyond a reasonable doubt, to be satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt. The second thing I say about that is this. There is no one man, in my experience, that is as a police officer of 12 years, and as a barrister now of 30 years, with what I've seen, there's never been one man that could have done all of that in the window of opportunity that he had. There is no single person that could have 
actually did all of the things that were done in that house. And remember, I've seen everything, much to my detriment, I suppose, that could have done that and walked away, let alone walk away without any forensic evidence against him whatsoever. You think about that. At the end of the day, what they're saying is that one man walked into a house in a small window of opportunity, which was effectively manipulated by the police. The timing was manipulated to suit their case and moved according to their needs. And effectively, it's a two-hour period, I think, that he's alleged to have done this. If you look at the menagerie inside the house, if you look at what happened to the bodies, if you looked at the injuries, if you looked at everything and where they were moved from, and at that stage there was evidence that Max had a bad back, at the very least we have one or two or three accomplices if it was him or at least two or three other people that were actually were involved at the time. Could never have been done by one man. Well, my answer to that is simply this. I don't know whether he's guilty or not, but in my view, that's not a case that will ever be answered because of the conduct of the case by the police. Sam, the most listener response throughout the podcast so far has been in relation to witness Andrea B. Can you share your thoughts on her evidence? <laughs> That's a funny one. Yes, my view is this. If I've ever, in my years of experience, I spent many, many years at the bar working on medical negligence cases. I've cross-examined many, many doctors, and I've worked with many, many psychiatrists. She was a glowing example of a perfect patient of multiple personalities and personal issues for a psychiatrist. She was truly mentally unwell. I have no faith in her evidence whatsoever. It was a very difficult cross-examination because she was groomed very, very well. Her previous behaviour under the guidance of police and other people in other courts had been completely different. On this occasion when she came to the Supreme Court, she came across better because she set up a script. She clearly had set up a script. It was almost impossible to do anything with her in cross-examination, even though it went for three days. I think it was nearly three days. But she was seriously mentally unstable. And she also, in my view, had a relationship of some extent with Zitney. The reason why the judge didn't allow this, the evidence of the videos that the jury wanted to see, is because she was flirting with with Zitney, and he interviewed her on his own. There's a tape recording there where he interviews her without any other policeman being present. She has some clothing which is somewhat risky on and gets very close to him, and they effectively, in my view, demonstrate a relationship. Now, if the jury had seen those tapes of those interviews, they would have had some serious doubts about her evidence. She was enamoured with Zitney. There's no question in my mind about that. Massingham, on the other hand, was a bit more, a bit more policeman-like. He was, a, to some extent, a bit more of a calming influence and more sensible. But just think about the phone call to his house on the weekend, the number of calls between them. 
you know, there's a number of recordings which are set up so that none of this appears in the recordings in the, to, that, to, to that extent. But when everything's quiet and they're on their own, it was, it was an extraordinary situation. I'd never seen anything like that in all my career involving the manipulation of a witness and encouraging her, on the other hand, saying, oh, don't go, don't go, don't go and test him because he's dangerous but in effect encouraging her to go and work with him. And for God's sake, this woman's in a car with him without underpants on and in a bed with him without underpants on, and she's married with two children. The most crucial aspect of the Crown case, I believe, was the time of death of the victims. Alumbi put the time at somewhere between four hours and two days. Do you have an opinion as to the time of death of the victim, Sam? My opinion is that Alumbi, who I had a good talk to and is a pleasant sort of chap and who is very accommodating, whether it be for me or for the police, in the sense that he's always willing to please. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Had no idea when the time of death was. He was probably forced to give up time, but the states of the body as they were by the, I suppose, the effects of the of the water and the clothing over the top of them and the bed sheets was such that you couldn't tell. I got no idea. It could have been, there wasn't such, such so much material that it had to be in, in more than two hours. They could have been killed two hours before or four hours before, five hours before. Or they could have, I don't think they were killed a couple of days before, in my opinion, from what I saw. I believe the most compelling evidence against Max Seeker was his alleged attendance at the Singh House after 11pm on Sunday the 20th of April 2003. Do you agree with that? Well, I think the last call, she was talking to her sister on the computer at about 8, 8.30 that night. And then she suddenly got off quickly and she said, I've got to go, there's somebody knocking at the door at about 8.30 at night from something like that. And she rushed off and cut off communication. Now, that was something which I raised as something very serious that nobody bothered to investigate. Who was this person at their door at 8.30 at night and did that person have anything to do with either them not communicating any further in the sense of perhaps being held, or did that person exist at all, or is there some reason why Neilma lied to her sister, or is it the case that that person was involved? The failure of the police to investigate that properly is another significant quiver in the arrow of failures. Or arrow in the quiver of failures, my apologies. 
If Max went around to the house on the Sunday night, which he denies, as you know, I believe that would be compelling evidence that he was involved in the murders. I don't know that it was compelling. I don't agree that it's compelling. Even if he did attend, that doesn't make him a killer and it doesn't make him the murderer. There were significant arguments about this during the course of the trial because, try as I might, I could not convince the Crown to call a number of witnesses, including his brother, which they would ordinarily do, to testify at seeing him. I think it was around midnight, and the cars that were there. But try as I might, they would not do that, which comes into play when you think about calling somebody like Andrea B. How they could possibly call her in circumstances where the Crown's got a responsibility to act fairly and not call people that are unreliable, yet refuse to call the brother and along, along with other people on the basis that they're unreliable and possibly biased, has never made sense to me and will never make sense to me. The fact is, sorry, the fact is that ultimately um, we agreed that Zitney's evidence to the effect that the brother had told him that he saw Max's feet at around midnight on that night would come into evidence and that's the best I could draw out of them, that that would come into evidence. So there is evidence there that the brother did see him, but it comes from Zitney, so it's unchallenged evidence. Why didn't you call Claudio Seeker, Marcia Q and Lisa L? The reason I didn't call them was because effectively I had to make a decision, a forensic decision, as to the benefit of calling witnesses. And to be fair, my view was that they never had a case that required the necessity to call other witnesses on those particular points. There was enough evidence there to demonstrate that at the time, in my view. I made a forensic decision. I must have made it. It's one of the most difficult times for a barrister is when the Crown closed their case and you've got to decide whether you call evidence from the defendant and or other witnesses. And that sometimes, that decision can take me, can be one of my most difficult decisions ever. Because you look at the Crown case, you look at its strengths, you look at its weaknesses, and then you've got to assess whether it's better to address first or address last. If you address first, the Crown with all its ammunition and the dozens of people they had working on the case, or six or seven, whatever it may be, would go through your submissions or address in minute detail and attack every single point. If you address last, you're able to see the points that they made to the jury, specifically consider what those point, which points the jury reacted to, so in effect what they want to hear on, and then it's an advantage to you, a significant advantage to you to address last. I don't remember now, but those things would have come into play. Sam, 
Can we talk about Stafford City Shopping Centre for a moment? There was CCTV available at that shopping centre in 2003. Do you know why Queensland Police did not or could not obtain that footage? And I understand you did ask them. What did they tell you? Yeah, I mean, I fought to try and get that material more than you could ever possibly think of. Well, you you know the answers they give you. They haven't got it. That's that's the answers they give you. There was none operating. Any excuse they could come up with, but it was quite clear, and I've always accepted that evidence, that he was at that shopping centre dropping off his sister, Anna, is it? at that particular time, and he could never have been at the house at that time. If you remember, I cross-examined the post office, or the postie for some period of time to try and get the accurate reading of the time that he was actually back at the house. That was a serious deficiency because Zitney and whoever drove up and down from where his house to the shops on numerous occasions. I referred them to the banks. I made inquiries with the banks. I did everything I possibly could to try and get them to produce anything, but nothing ever came out. It didn't suit their case. And we go back then to everything that was inculpatory came out, manipulated or otherwise. Nothing that was exculpatory ever eventuated. Can we discuss the evidence of the footprints found in the fingerprint powder going from the ground floor up to the first floor, which was very significant evidence for the Crown, as you know? Yes. I can tell you that effectively, again, in my view, that was manipulated in this sense. The Canadian Mountie they brought over, much like the case in North Queensland with that um, with that Aboriginal man where the expert had dinner with the police the night before, the police took this um, Canadian Mountie to, to the football. They had dinner with him. They developed a relationship with him. I think it was the most pathetic evidence I've ever seen. What more can I say? He was, in my view, clearly biased. In my view, he was there to please. And in my view, a lot of it just didn't make sense. The Queen's Council told the solicitor that the Queen's Council, and I can't remember his name now, in the appeal told the solicitor that it was the best cross-examination of an expert witness he had ever seen. I cross-examined him downhill and updale. But he was one of those witnesses that uh, just it was just wrong. And how on earth did they discover these footprints so many days after the event? Allegedly, two or three of the bosses decided that they wanted to see the place before they released it. So Zitney took them, and one or two of the bosses were standing on the carpet or the the paper, and allegedly, during their movements, they tore the paper, somehow it went to the carpet, and miraculously, this print appeared. And this, much like the pitchfork being found some 10 or 12 days after the event, by a non-expert, such as Zitney, who's close to the case, is another feature that will always astound me. Yes, I was always curious 
about the footprint evidence and how that fingerprint powder got under both the paper and the plastic. And like you, I was curious about the amount of time it took to find the alleged murder weapon. Remember, you have 30, 40 experts, scientific experts, directing police to search every inch of that house. I cross-examined at length about going from inch to inch and the methodology used. You would know some of those, Graham. The grills, the grill searches and various things like that, you can perform them on walls. I cross-examined them to the exact depth of their search to the point of inches apart. They had searched every place, every point of place, yet they didn't find the pitchfork with, which allegedly had blood on it, which is at least four foot, five foot tall or over a metre. And lo and behold, Zitney finds it 13 days later. It's not exactly the shovel that Andrea B would like to have had discovered, but it certainly perhaps looks a bit like it. How do you explain that? Sam, another area I have suspicions about relate to the footprints at the bottom of the stairs and the distance between the first and second impression. Do you remember that? I remember something of it. I'm not 100% clear. It's been a long time, Graham. There were two footprint impressions. One was visible on the day and the other came about as a result of the so-called paper and plastic over the carpet and the fingerprint powder sneaking underneath. It was a crown case. The first impression was the left foot and the second impression was the right foot. But the distance between the two was crazy. No, I do remember cross-examining it about it very significantly in the sense that it didn't make sense. The pattern of the feet didn't make sense. And they explained, it away, they explained it away on the basis of the height of Max being six foot two. And he's having a big step, I think, to some, something to that extent. But it, none of it ever made sense. One, two, I think three, four, I think it went up to seven, didn't it? Yes, seven or nine. I, I can't remember off the top of my head. I'm six foot one, Sam, and there's no way I could have made those impressions. The gap was just too wide between the left foot and then the next step. That, that's irrelevant that you don't think you could do it because of this reason here. They weren't interested in the facts. They just needed to make it fit. And whether it fit or not was irrelevant. I must admit, I've spent a lot of time thinking about the fingerprint powder sneaking its way under the paper and the plastic, and also the amount of time it took to find that pitchfork. Think about what you're saying. There's a strange discovery of a pitchfork that was allegedly the weapon. There's a strange discovery of the footprints on a day, many days after the place had been closed, and there's a strange discovery of the fingerprint powder getting underneath and creating this. Are they strange or is there a basis for it? A basis in truth? Yes, a very curious part of the case. Some would even say suspicious. Sam, can you tell me when you believe Max Seeker became 
the main and only suspect in the murders? It happened almost immediately. The biggest problem that Max Seeker had, in my view, was a seriously inexperienced and at times incompetent and biased, and I would call somewhat pompous, Detective Sergeant Zitney. The first thing he did when he got to the site and pulled over when Max was in the gutter crying like a baby, as it were, and was with his parents, after he got his details, he made a phone call to VKR, and you can explain to your audience what VKR is, and he got Max's criminal history. One of the things that came out, not only, well, he was a criminal as a youngster, I think he was only about 17 or 18 at that time, and the evidence that came out was in respect of his having burnt down a police station, having either assaulted police or done something of that sort, and being involved in a Molotov cocktail. From that point on, Zitney put the blinkers on and had absolutely no interest on anybody else but Max. So from the very moment he got that information from BKR, he had made up his mind. I always thought Max Seeker was his own worst enemy out there in the media calling on police to arrest him. Well, you've got to remember his age and perhaps cultural things as well. If you truly believe you're innocent, whether you're innocent or not, but if you truly believe it, I see that as somebody basically saying, well, I didn't do anything. Come and get me. They chose to make it look like he was saying, I'm smarter than you. I'm the smartest man in the room. And therefore, you'll never catch me. That suited their case. But I always saw that as a person who was saying, well, I've never done anything wrong. I trust in the system. You keep on pulling me up everywhere. You're always bringing the media. You're always doing this. Get it over and done with me. If you think you've got the evidence, do it, because you'll never convict me because I didn't do it. On the other hand, they prefer to take the view that that was him saying, I'm so much smarter than you. Whatever you do, I'll get away with this. It just seemed like he was out there all the time. I think he got a lot of people offside and a lot of media offside by, for want of a better word, his antics. Well, the thing is that the police manipulated the media. You recall that the media, whenever they did a raid or whenever they were going to pull Max over, the media were always there. And they would always put on a show for the media, putting him in handcuffs. So if they did a raid at 6 o'clock in the morning, the media were there. Now, you worked on, did you work undercover? I think you did, like I did. No, never. Well, I did. And one of the fundamental principles is you never tell a soul. You never tell them the time. You never tell them the place. And, in fact, if we were going to do a raid on the Gold Coast, we would drive north for the first half hour. And that was the way we conducted our investigations. So... It's very unfair that he was portrayed as being the smartest man in the room. I think he was just a child, an inexperienced person, a child who actually thought, I don't know whether he's innocent or not, as I said, but he so much believed in his own innocence 
that he was challenging him and saying, well, I've done nothing wrong. Come and get me. If you put the other lead on it, it turns everybody against him. Much like when they arrested him three or four weeks before they charged him for the murder, when they arrested him for the 22 rapes and they're maintaining the relationship with a child, I think she was about 8 to 14 years of age. And in my view, they purposely did that at that time because they got it out into the media because they expected a trial to come on within a reasonable time. And again, because it was never, that case was never going to succeed. They wanted to do that trial first, and that was the only case I ever won in, I think, six 590A applications to throw evidence out or to challenge evidence. I lost every one before Justice Lyons. The interview that they had with him, which went more than 19 hours, where if you look at the interview, he was falling asleep constantly. The duties of a police officer at that time were quite clear. Yet his honour, Justice Lyons, just simply did not have an interest. Watch him falling asleep during the interview for the police. And I tried to get some of that excluded. No chance. I tried to get him a judge-only trial. The fact that I couldn't get him one in the circumstances before Justice or the Chief Justice was extraordinary. Thanks for that. Can we move on to the DNA and discuss that and get your thoughts on the DNA or the lack of DNA in this case? You'll have to refresh my memory. I don't, what, what DNA? Well, as you recall, there was no DNA implicating or connecting Max Seeker to the murders in any way. But at the same time, there was no DNA implicating or connecting anyone else either. Well, I, I suppose to some extent, I was unhappy with a lot of it, but you've got to put it together with the fingerprints. So you have a number of categories of fingerprints. You have fingerprints which are identifiable in the sense that they're there and are able to be identified. You have fingerprints that are unidentifiable but able to be identified in the sense that they can recover the print there's just nobody in the system that matches it. Or you have fingerprints that effectively are incapable of being effectively able to be um, exposed as a proper print. In this case here, I think there was over 200 prints. Many of those prints were people that were, which were identifiable, but unidentified. So much like the DNA, to this day you have people's prints there that have never been identified, yet they are able to be identified, save and except for the fact that those persons' prints don't exist in the database. So if we then bring in the Fiji connection, and let's hypothesise people that fly in, do what they've got to do and fly out, how do we know who those fingerprints belong to? Yes, another one of the loose ends in the case. I've often wondered whether the offenders flew in from Fiji, Malaysia or Indonesia, committed the murders and flew out again 
if in fact Max Seeker did not kill them. Well, that was my view, but I couldn't get them to do anything about it. And basically, in my view, um, Zitney had a holiday in Fiji. Again, he only looked for inculpatory evidence. He didn't look for exculpatory evidence. But look, the fingerprints, in my view, and the DNA, such as they are and exist, they will never look at again. They don't want to reopen this case. Sam, I want to ask you about VJ and Shirley. VJ used to go to Fiji all the time. He had uh, women over there he used to see. He never, ever took Shirley with him. But on this occasion, this one occasion, he took Shirley. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I have my own thoughts on it. I have a view that VJ knew something was going to happen to Nilma. All of them were swingers except Nilma. She was the one, the only one that refused to participate. You've got to remember the father hit her so hard with a pool cue that he smashed it into pieces. The violence towards Nilma by the father kept her out of school for three or four days on one occasion alone. The pool cue broke in two or three parts. He just was passionate about his own views. This is a debauched family. You got no, and the judge tried to keep that out. I had massive fights with Justice Byrne. The reason these people were convicted, or this person was convicted, was because Justice Byrne did a written summing up that was extraordinary. I was able to get a lot of it tossed out, or some of it tossed out but he was smart enough to get around me on each each occasion. When I got it tossed out in one area, he would put it in a different wording. But he had decided, in my view, and effectively, in my view, that document directed them to find him guilty. Don't get me wrong, he was a good judge. Everybody was scared of him. I was never scared of him, and I had no fear of him whatsoever. And he was an intelligent man. But that worked both ways because he had, in my respectful view to him, made up his mind on the evidence, or for whatever reason, on the evidence, I would say, and he basically directed the jury what to do. That document was astounding. Well, thanks, Sam. I think we have pretty much covered everything. Well, I don't know what else I can tell you. I think, you know, there's, if he ever wants to get out, don't forget, he, he's going to do a, he was going to do a um, application to the governor, but the governor was the fellow that refused him the judge only trial. But look, there's some interesting things about that. You know, look at look at also the other evidence of the car in, what was the name of that street? Pepper Street, was it? That car that was parked in a position to get away as a getaway car. They had the audacity not to test his wheels for wheel prints for 14 months or 12 months. And then they argued that he purposely changed the tyres to hide the fact that it was his car yet they didn't bother to check it for 14 months. But if you recall, one of the witnesses nominated what sort of car it was, but then the evidence in the statement contradicted what the witness actually said. So if I hadn't sought the notebook and compared them, it was quite clear that it was a different car. But, look, I think the jury... The biggest thing I want to mention to you, which I forgot to mention, is this. 
one of my appeal points was that the jury was so psychologically damaged by the evidence and so unwell by the time the decision had to come and I didn't know completely at the time that they should never have been, that the trial should have been overturned on that basis alone. There's a decision in New South Wales where a jury went for five or six months and the trial was overturned on the basis of the jury psychological state. This was exactly the same. It was worse. And it was one of the points that I had in my appeal, but Mr. Glynn chose to take that out. I think I had 18 points of appeal. Anyway. Well, thanks again, Sam, for giving up your time and giving us your thoughts and opinions on the case. Much appreciated. That's it for The Defence Speaks. Thank you for joining me in this latest episode of Loose Ends. I'll drop another episode as soon as practicable. If you follow the podcast, you will be advised when a further episode is released. Please rate and review the podcast. It does help spread the story. If you like the podcast, recommend it to others. If you have questions, information or feedback, you can contact me via the following. The Facebook page is Loose Ends, The Singh Family Tragedy. My email address is looseends2003 at outlook.com. This podcast was made possible with the grateful assistance of the ACAST Creator Network. Music Before I Go by RKVC. You'll find all my contact details in the show notes at the end of each episode. Thanks very much for listening.